listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single-origin coffees. They're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I like to start off with usually one or two cups. I make it by hand at home with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make it. You could be using a Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You have to start with really high quality beans and you'll always make sure you have a great cup. So just say no to those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find at a grocery store and upgrade your coffee game. I'm going to make it real easy for you. Here's what you do. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our code JDP10. That's JDP10. And you get $5 off your first purchase. Do it right now while you're thinking about it. You'll be happy you did. I want to welcome our newest sponsor, Baron Fig. Whether you need pens, notebooks, or bags, they have you covered. Baron Fig makes tools for thinking. And they'll help you do your best thinking at home, work, and in between. And if you're a podcast fan, the small little notebooks they have are great for taking notes to refer back to later. I've been using their products now for gosh, over five years, and I love the craftsmanship and attention to detail. So if you like the podcast, show your support to Baronfig. Go to baronfig.com and use our code JDP10, that's JDP10, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. So go check it out right now while you're thinking about it. Today in the show, we have Julian Brigden. Julian is the co-founder and president of Macro Intelligence 2 Partners. He brings 25 years of experience in financial markets, including five years at Medley Global Advisors, a leading macro policy intelligence firm, and has served as North American head of hedge fund sales at Credit Agricole. He's worked in London, Zurich, New York, and Vail at UBS, Lehman Brothers, HSBC, Drexel, Credit Suisse, and Solomon Brothers in FX and precious metals. He's been featured on many financial outlets, including Bloomberg, CNBC, Wall Street Journal, Barron's, and more, for the firm's research on EM, liquidity, QE, bubbles, and global FX. Enjoy my conversation with Julian Brigden. Julian, welcome to the podcast. Wow, Ryan. Thank you very much for having me. Um, What a day. We should probably tell everyone, because it changes from minute to minute, that we're recording this at, uh, what is it, 3.30 Eastern on the 18th of March. Yeah, this is Wednesday, March 18th at um, at 12.30 Pacific, uh, 3.30 Eastern. 
And so let's talk about uh, what's been going on for the past you know, few days to week here in, in, in markets. Yeah, I, mean, I think, look, we spoke, was it the beginning of December, I think, um, last, and we outlined, you know, some of our concerns about the speed of some of the moves that we were getting in uh, equity markets. We highlighted how we thought that the Fed was being very disingenuous by dismissing what they were doing in terms of the repo and the potential connection uh, with the equity markets. In fact, we saw um, a couple of Fed officials come out, you know, Kaplan uh, from Texas and his old boss, uh, Richard Fisher, come out and talk about how they believed it was going into the equity market. And so we kind of come into this year pretty negative, frankly. I mean, uh, you know, macro insider clients, we'd been really stressing on them to be very, very careful of stuff. We were just not seeing the macro pick up. The, the equity markets were implying the speed of the moves. And this is one of the things, Ryan, that we stress to people. The run up in Amazon, you know, when we added 500 billion basically from early October to its high in February, um, reminded us in many ways of sort of the moves that we'd seen in Y2K. The same is true of Tesla you know, or at the end of 2000, uh, in the third quarter of 2018, when we saw Netflix and NVIDIA, you know, Amazon kind of run up. These kind of incredibly parabolic, rapid, explosive moves where the numbers, you know, numbers were shit and, and you know, prints weren't necessarily as good as matter, but, you know, stock would dip for like an hour and then it would just rip again. I mean, it was just this feeding frenzy, this orgy of, of, of excess. And so we walked into the beginning of the year pretty worried. Now, we thought that it could be the macro data that tips things over because we, it was never as strong as we thought it was going to be or the market was thinking it was me. We also worried that the Fed was starting to talk about running down the balance sheet starting in March, and that really worried us. Right. What we didn't think was that we'd be dealing with a global pandemic, but in a way, it didn't really matter what the trigger was, that the market was just ripe for a rapid correction. Um, I now... Things have gone much further than that, though. What we're now starting to see is what started off up until probably a couple of weeks ago um, as an equity, as a, as a box standard kind of equity correction, has turned into a broad de-risking. Now, we'd flagged to uh, both our MI2 clients and our macro insider kind of more retail clients that, in fact, we said to macro insider clients very specifically, you know, we're very worried about the bond market, right? Because there comes a point where fixed income, and typically you see this in crisis, stops acting as a very good hedge. We'd had an incredibly good run, you know, and that's why in the beginning of uh, February um, and into the first sort of corrective phase of the equity market, there was very little stress actually, Ryan, it was amazing. You know, we were down, you know, 15% and there was very little stress. You know, I spoke to most clients. They were like, yeah, you know, the hedges have worked, you know, long, short guys. Oh, yeah, you know, uh, we've been long, um, 
Google and short Chevron, you know, that's worked brilliantly well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Vol was actually relatively well constrained. The VIX was, you know, elevated, but was holding below kind of 36, which is the first kind of line in the sand that you have to watch that, that sort of mid thirties. Um, you looked at, you know, bonds were acting brilliantly as a hedge. Um, and then they stopped acting quite so well as a hedge. Um, and vol spiked again. And it rem- has, you know, it went from 36 to the sort of high 40s, 50s. And that's that typically outside the GFC, well, outside the GFC for the last 20 years, that had been it, right? But we didn't back off. We went again. And that triggered a broad Varshock. So explain, I mean, I'm sure other uh, speakers have explained that, but basically more risk portfolios have various metrics they use to kind of balance risk. One of them is value at risk. And it's basically a a metric which tries to say, okay, you can have a, when volatility is super low, let's say you can run $100 million position. When volatility increases beyond that, you can only run a $50 million position. When volatility increases beyond that, you can only run a $20 million position, right? So even if you have the right trades on, um, you can actually find that your risk manager is tapping on your shoulder, forcing you to de-risk. So you can get into this bizarre situation where you've got the right trade on, but you're forced to de-risk. And when we started to see that, and we've been worried, and we talked about, I think, back in um, December, how we were worried about modern portfolio theory, and we were worried about risk parity is kind of the tip of that spear of modern portfolio theory. Um, and this is the idea that you're long everything, but you're long a bunch of risk assets, uh, you know, equities, credit, but you've got long fixed income against that works as a perfect hedge. Okay. And it, and it does, but when that volatility and across, across the whole portfolio starts to increase, then you have to start to cut down the overall leverage. And then the problem is, is that you find that the cross correlation between equities and fixed income starts to break down. So having been a perfect hedge is your force because typically these disparity portfolios have very, very large positions in fixed income. As they're forced to disgorge those positions, the cross correlation starts to break down. So fixed income no longer because they're selling is no longer acting as such a good hedge. And then things start to get really, really toxic, Ryan. Right. That's essentially where we are now, right? Nothing is working, okay? Gold isn't really working. Silver's sure as hell isn't working. Bonds aren't working. And my equities are still going down. What the hell do I do? Well, the only thing you can do is reduce the risks. And the amount of reduction in risks is palpable. I mean, I... Talk to a buddy of mine who trades uh, dollar mex, so dollar, the dollar against the Mexican peso. He runs a book in that. He was allowed to run two hundred million dollars worth of risk. His position limit now is twelve million dollars. <laughs> wow! Because the vols have just blown out so much, and the risk books are saying cut down your risk. So almost 
This is the problem with all these things. You're running definitionally the largest positions that you possibly can from a risk perspective at the lowest levels of vol. And as those vols start to accelerate, you begin an exponential reduction in the size of the positions you're supposed to be carrying. But that carries across market makers who don't really exist anymore and all carries. So everyone is trying to sell at a time when no one can buy because all, even if they're the right way around into the trade, because their risk limits are curtailed. So that's how you can get into this situation. Right. And we saw the 10-year treasury get down to a low of, it looks like, 31 basis points intraday. And then we saw the long bond get down to 71 bips. As you mentioned, the, the VIX spiked to all-time highs right where it was in the GFC. So obviously, we saw yields back down and then... I'll, and then, you know, in short order, pretty much spike, you know, back up the 10 years now, well over 100 basis points. Yeah. It, are we just starting to experience the tip of the iceberg there as far as this risk parity trade unwinding? Well, I mean, I would hope that we get a bit of a break here. Um, it is quite hard to envisage breaking this is a little is a little tough, right? Because you're not dealing with a standard financial crisis you're dealing with a pandemic so you know it's i've talked to some trends who say you know if you look at what the chinese did they really came in with the very aggressively with their stimulus once their numbers had started to peak and in terms of pandemics and clearly that's not happening we're seeing our numbers accelerate and we will see our numbers accelerate particularly in new york and seattle and possibly soon in boston um as the weather starts to warm up a little bit mm-hmm. um that seems to be the risk so and yet we're shooting off bullet after bullet after bullet and there's really we haven't got an endless uh chamber of ammo uh, certainly not the monetary side has basically shot it's it's bolt it's done um and so I do creating that firebreak is actually very hard. Um, we've also, and this is one of the things I think we talked about in December, we've screwed around with the system so much since 0809 that many of the safeguards that were there just aren't there anymore. I mean, there is no such thing really as a market maker, right? Uh, he just can't take the risk thanks to, you know, Dodd-Frank and the Volcker rule, right? He just can't step up to the plate we don't have the traders there you know i was looking there's a there's a regulation out there that means that traders can't make markets from home it's actually legislated that they can't make markets from home. so the traders are sitting at trading desks and yet we're starting to see people become ill so take this thing out two weeks i I don't think we've got two weeks but let's take this thing out two weeks and you know what traders you even did have are sick well then you have no market makers right and so so far we've seen the fed come in for two emergency cuts i believe well what the one was sunday and then i believe the sunday before Mm -hmm. um and so now you know they, they took rates down to the target rate between uh, zero and 25 basis points. And then, so what exactly, obviously they're pumping more money into the repo market, which is an overnight lending facility, right? I believe only a certain amount of that has been tapped. Yep. Um, and we saw Goldman look like tap the discount window. So there's, there's 
you know, things happening and the Fed is trying to keep the liquidity going, um, stopping credit markets from freezing up here. But what are what is actually kind of the next steps that they could have in the toolbox? We know they could, you know, get maybe congressional approval to buy other assets like corporate bonds is being talked about equities. You know, they could take rates negative. They could obviously do some things like banning short selling or maybe even closing the market for a few days or a week. What do you think, you know, just speculation of what could be coming down the pike? You know, uh, someone made, I think, a very astute observation uh, to me the other day. You know, this is the time you want Jamie Diamond, right, with the poor guys laid up in bed. Um, Let's hope with nothing too serious. But you need a figurehead in the banking industry with credibility uh, on on Capitol Hill. And you need him to walk in there and go, look. Loosen up these restrictions that you put on banks back in yeah. the global financial crisis, post the global financial crisis. Let us make markets. Let us add to liquidity. Let us take risk. Let us not uh, have to hedge every trade that we do. I mean, this is part of the problem. I mean, banks have loan, but they don't take on bonds anymore. They're not allowed to do that you know, on the books, what they do do is they've lent money to companies, right? And we can see all there. We've all seen that the credit lines getting drawn down, but they hedge them now. So they've actually become part of the problem. So what happens is that the banks will start selling equity in the company that they lend the money to or buying CDS and credit default swaps um, against them. And so that actually exacerbates the fall in the credit or the blowing out of the CDS and you get into this kind of vicious circle. Um, Ending that would definitively help. The second thing, and I think, you know, do we put short selling bans in? I don't think so Um, yet. I mean, I could see a situation if the numbers of the pandemic just got so bad that we could close the market. I think the US wants to avoid that utterly, but we could, right? Because if you just get to the situation where the, the things just don't function, we haven't got traders at desk because they're all bloody sick and the whole thing just gets out of hand, you may have to, right? Mm-hmm. But I do think that um, expanding the ability of the Fed to buy certain assets would really help. But part of the problem there is that you know, we have gutted the New York Fed, mm-hmm. right, um, of a lot of, um, you know, key people. Um, and this is a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so as far as the, that makes sense, as far as loosening the regulations, now, last time we talked, we discussed the, what was going on with the repo market at the time. There are a lot of different varying views and opinions about that. Do you think that this is a situation where you just kind of outlined a few issues that's causing some of the this liquidity seize up to happen? Is that still something where it's being debated in the marketplace or are people coming to the realization that, okay, this is probably what we have to do in order to keep the liquidity going. The problem is, is you've got, look back in October, you didn't have volatility stress. Um, So the, so the money could be lent easily out. The repo money could be lent easily out. The reason why, you know, the fed offered half a trillion and under 80 billion was borrowed is because the banks can't lend it now. 
because market conditions have changed. So in exactly the same way that, you know, value at risk models dictate that you run the most risk in the lowest vol environment. And then all of a sudden the conditions change and you can't run that risk. Right. Mm -hmm. In exactly the same way that you can't lend to the funds who you'd like to be lending to and take down all the repo when those conditions change. Right. That makes sense. So the, the dynamic has essentially changed here, Ryan. So it's not clear that just adding more and more cash can address the issues because the underlying dynamic has changed. Right. And now the Fed has said they're basically going to be doing, well, they haven't said the words large scale asset purchases, but they're buying across the curve all the way to the 30 day or sorry, 30 year maturity. Um, so it looks like, as we talked about last time, uh, you said the Fed definitely has no chance to shrink the balance sheet. And now we we already see that the question is, how large is it going to get at this point? <laughs> I mean, look, we last time we talked about where this thing ends up. And I said, you know, to my mind, we're going into, you know, fiscal spending and ultimately this ends up at some point i didn't think it would be you know three months later (laughs) yeah exactly uh but we're going into uh fiscal spending and that is where we're going um and central banks are at the end of the day an adjunct of government Mm-hmm. They're an arm of government. They are not a independent, you know, entity, um, unless maybe they're the Bundesbank. Um, and even that now has been hollowed out by the ECB, as we've seen. Um, they are an arm of government. And in a war, which is what arguably this is, um, you know, one of my clients made a very astute observation. Essentially, we've been invaded, right? Mm-hmm. By by a you know a foreign entity, you know coronavirus. Um, you do your part, and central banks will do their part. And so, I suspect, and Powell sort of intimated this um, in his conference call last one, I think. Um, go ahead, Treasury, issue the debt. If things get out of hand, your name's the Fed. We'll just buy it. Right. So it looks like today we had another limit down on the S&P, which caused the circuit breaker to kick in. We've already seen at least a couple of those in the past week. (laughs) (laughs) And so at this point, we're down, what are we down about 30% from the peak Mm -hmm. on on the S&P. So we could still have, when you look at the technicals, I know people are looking at at a couple of key points there. But I guess my question would be, when you look at fixed income on a relative basis to equities, do <laughs> equities might seem actually attractive when you look at it maybe on a relative basis? Or look, is that and I, and I, look uh, I think going forward, as we move through this year and into 2021, um, and fiscal rectitude on both sides of the of the aisle in Congress has been taken out and shot through the head. Um, you know, needs must. And let's be brutally bloody honest. I mean, politicians always love spending cash, right? I mean, then you know, it doesn't take much to push them over, and they've exactly. got every every excuse in the world now to spend money. Um, 
that I think bonds are a horrible long-term investment at this point. I think they've served you well up until now. I don't think there's much juice left in them. The fact that they're selling off as fixed income, as equities are selling off, is telling you that, that they've kind of hit the end of their tether. I mean, we had a we put a trade out in in euro dollars, so dec- December euro dollars, which suggested to people uh, to our sort of uh, client base um, in it was in euro dollars that we did it to sort of the professional clients, and then we'd suggested to the uh, macro insiders they do do sort of kind of like an ETF, and it was mid January put the thing on um, December euro dollars were trading at like ninety eight forty three or something, and we we said look this is a pretty solidly decent risk reward trade. The downside's kind of capped because the Fed's not going to hike rates. Maybe this thing can run up to the previous highs, which was 98.84. And then I somewhat fatuously put in there, of course, you know, if things really go wrong, then maybe they can run up to like 99 and a half, 99 and three quarters. Well, I never in a million years envisaged we were going to get there. Um, but the point is, is they did run all the way there. It was an amazing trade. But bigger picture, the issue now is there no hedge. Right? If you don't want to go to negative interest rates, mm-hmm. fixed income is no hedge to you now. So it, it may not have a lot of downside, but it's got no upside. Yeah. The yields are bloody pathetic. Um, you're absolutely right. You should be looking around for things to essentially replace your bond portfolio with. And really, the only option is in the equity space. The issue there is credit. And this, I think, unfortunately, is the biggest threat now that we're facing in markets. It's not really equity. So, you know, we're talking on the 18th, the 17th, we had another one of those massive bear market rallies in stocks, right? Mm -hmm. Face ripper, up the damn thing goes. And yet, if you looked at credit metrics, you know, something like the HYG. There's some other ones which are kind of even more uh, interesting potentially, but CDX, all of those things didn't budge. In fact, Mm -hmm. went down. Mm -hmm. And this is the fundamental issue now. We are moving from, you know, an equity bear market into a broader uh, credit event. Um, And that's why, to go back to, I think really that's what the Fed bloody needs to do. Yeah, and last time we talked, you mentioned a scenario where definitely if, you know, basically rates, yields come down, and then we have kind of that risk off scenario, and then and then eventually they start marching back up and kind of put in that blow off top. So it looks like, in your view, at this point, have yields kind of maybe hit that bottom and then are f- slowly trying to find their way up now? It's hard to imagine yes, how much think, worse the news can get. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's probably the case. I mean, look, I, I said I thought that we'd put the low in in, in June of uh, of 2016 in in yields around you know one and a half percent. But as I said, I wasn't. I don't think I was alone in this. Um, I certainly wasn't predicting a global pandemic. Um, but I do generally think that as you look out. Um, and some people would say this is already being factored into the blow off and this, that we're seeing at the long end of the bond market as yields rising again, that people are beginning to factor in the fiscal spending. I'm not totally convinced that that's yet being factored in. I actually think what is, as I said, is being factored is, is actually what's happening is a deleveraging of 
funds that own fixed income as a hedge and there's that whole fund deleverages they have to disgorge their fixed income so i think it's for for selling but um if you were to stay take a step back uh ryan i think it's bloody reasonable to say if we went into this with debt to gdp at you know 100 percent and um that was assuming gdp was going to be flat gdp is going to be down now right so the debt is going up and the gdp is going down where the hell does it take the deficit well the answer is how long's a piece of string i mean the chancellor of the checker in the uk yesterday said whatever it takes and i mean whatever it takes and that's a country that's done five percent of gdp fiscal spending mm-hmm. okay 15 percent of gdp potential guarantees to the banks to lend for credit mm-hmm. right where does the number go is it 30 percent of gdp is it 50 percent of gdp right and how are you looking this when you look at currencies around the world, I know people are watching the Dixie, which for people who don't know is looking at the dollar versus a basket of currencies. Um, how are you mostly looking the at euro. the dollar? Um, mostly the euro, right. Well, let's see, so so here's, here's what's been a little bizarre. So up until a week ago, we were having inordinate FX volatility, right? Inordinate FX volatility i mean we'd recommended to clients um month six weeks ago to buy fx vol and we just said you know buy some stuff against the majors this just doesn't look sustainable to us these ridiculous levels and we got lucky um but when you when you look to say a broad trade weighted index of the of the dollar the dollar actually had gone nowhere and it was amazing it was a huge explosion of volatility and you'd say what the hell was going on well when you peel back the the surface of the waves and you kind of looked underneath what you saw was the following the euro and the yen had exploded against the dollar and everything else had imploded against the dollar so the aussie the kiwi the canadian dollar the uh british pound everything okay and emerging markets eviscerated okay what was going on well actually what was going on was that you were seeing a de-risking and as for years, and we talked about this, foreigners have been pumping money into the United States, okay? And they'd been buying unhedged US risk assets. And a very large proportion of either the funding for that or the source of the funds on an unhedged basis has come out of Europe and Japan, right? Those are the biggest single blocks, right? They dwarf, you know, sterling, the UK as a zone or the sterling area as a zone, or they dwarf, you know, the Aussie, the, the, the Australian sector. But it was really in those markets where the funding had come from. So essentially, either people were borrowing in euros to buy US assets because it was lower interest rates to fund in euros, or they were uh, coming out of Europe and going straight into the US market unhedged. And so as we saw the, the sell-off in risk assets, that money got taken home. And so what had to happen is if you were a European investor unhedged and you were on the NASDAQ, you sold the NASDAQ 
you then sold those dollars, you bought euros, and you were the one contributing to the euro. Okay. Now, in the last 72 hours, things have changed. The euro is falling too. And the reason for that is, is because we got into a funding squeeze. And um, that was as uh, people couldn't get hold of dollars. You might have heard of these things called cross-currency basis swaps. This is a swap rate which uh, the professional market uses to exchange one currency against the other. Mm -hmm. And those rates just blew out. And then the Fed came in as part of their the things that they did at the weekend, and they offered swap lines to the major central banks. Now, so far, um, it's actually been highly effective if you look at the euro and the yen. Those rates have collapsed, sterling as well. Uh, but I don't think they've done enough. And um, I think until they've done enough to help other central banks, and during the global financial crisis, they did more. They came in waves kind of as they expanded the range of central banks that they were willing to offer liquidity to. Um, because it's somewhat contentious. You don't want to be lending to, you know, Uncle Tom Cobley and all, all these, you know, bizarre Vietnam or Singapore or, right? You, you feel safe because you've done it over hundreds of years to the Bank of England or the ECB or, you know, their equivalent, right. you know, the Bundesbank. But eventually, I think we will get there. And then I think it will be interesting to see what happens to the dollar because Christ alive, we've done everything structurally we can to throw this thing under a bus. Um, it's just, and typically actually a dollar cycle ends like this. It ends up with a big rally and a sort of destructive rally. Um, so I, I think it will be interesting to watch the dollar. Um, that might be one of our few salvations, frankly, to kind of create a bit of a fire break. Um, because then you might get some inflation in some of these other assets, um, which are very sensitive to the dollar. That would be good. Right. And that's an interesting explanation. Now, we should mention that we were going to be recording here on Wednesday the 18th, just after the Fed press conference, uh, which was canceled due to the emergency um, the meeting they had. So I'm looking don't at long, Don't wait too long to get this damn thing out because the world's going to change. In, maybe in half an hour, Ryan, I'll give you. Yeah, we're going to we're going to get this out um as soon as we can. So I'm looking here at the the federalreserve.gov website and the next meeting is of course scheduled for April 28th and then 29th uh for the I believe there's going to be a press conference. Um oh no, no no press conference not until the June meeting. So you talked about the big bazooka that might come out on the fiscal side. So they're obviously they're working on a plan. They're talking about giving maybe a thousand dollars, maybe a couple thousand to every American. They've been talking about the payroll tax holiday. They've been, obviously they did the student loan interest um, moratorium for now. So they're kind of rolling out things slowly, but surely. And it, there isn't a whole lot of information yet um, on at least this large plan that's about to come out. So I, I guess let's talk about the fiscal side and then we can move to monetary policy about what the Fed might do and the next couple of meetings coming up through the summertime. So, look, on the fiscal side, um, it's a little ad hoc, right? I mean, I do think there are times when the me society, uh, which is what I would call most of the Western world these days, 
breaks down. Normally it works far better than that collective kind of, you know, Borg-esque, Star Wars-esque type of, uh, you know, we all comply, we all follow the same rules. But sometimes it really breaks down. And one of them is is times like this because everyone is out for themselves. So the uh, president was slow to roll out testing, didn't want to really acknowledge the risks associated with the pandemic because he didn't want to undermine his election chances. Uh, when it became clear that there was a problem and he need, we need some fiscal help, uh, Congress is kind of dragging their feet because they don't the Democrats don't want to give the president what they need to. Um, you know, to re-stimulate the economy. Um, likewise, you know, the NBA was still holding games with hundreds of thousands of people turning up, or you know, tens of thousands of people turning up, you know, right before this bloody thing we should have shut down ages ago. Well, you know, and so, look, we will get there. Um, uh, you know, Winston Churchill always said the Americans do the right thing. They're always just a bit late, essentially. And that was just to paraphrase what he said. Um, <laughs> Yeah. But uh, we will get there. Um, it's just actually quite tough, Ryan. And it goes back to what I said before, the plumbing of the system. You know, in a very simplistic kind of world where uh, banks lend to small and medium-sized enterprises and they hold those um, stocks on the books or they hold those loans on the books, then you can go along to the local cooperative bank and you can say, we're the US government, we're your regulator, you know, please forbear on calling these loans. And if you take losses, we will underpin them. And that's kind of what you've seen in, should we say, simpler, less evolved in, in those simpler systems where the plumbing is is direct, you can make those kind of changes. You can get liquidity where it needs to be and easily. As I said before, post we've kind of changed the plumbing. We've made the banks safer conceptually, but we've, as a result, we've pushed risk elsewhere because we haven't deleveraged. And this is what we talked about in the last uh, interview we did. We, you know, we haven't reduced the risk in the overall system. We've just shifted it about. And um, that creates problems. I mean, one of the entities that we're following as a type of entity are these business development corporations. So business development corporations are um, investment vehicles that buy the lowest rating of the lowest rating corporate credit. Mm -hmm. They uh, typically buy bundled uh, or loans uh, from smaller banks, uh, that goes to small and medium-sized enterprises, and they own the risk. Then, right? So the bank just makes the loan, then offlays the loan to. I mean, in the same way that we had with collateralized mortgage obligations in the GFC, right? They weren't held by the originating bank anymore; they were held elsewhere. Right. So they own the loan, right? Now. How do we get them to not forbear on a small and medium-sized company? Mm -hmm. right? We don't regulate them like we regulate the banks, right? We can't lean on them 
you know, like we did in the GFC with the banks, right? We've all seen the movie where all the banks were called in to to sit down with, you know, Hank Paulson. And, you know, I can't remember whether it was uh, Bank of Boston, not Bank of Boston, it was State Street said, well, we don't need any capital, right? And Paulson goes, well, you see that lady over there talking about the uh, the FDIC um, lady, she'll, I think it was Sheila Baird, um, you know, and says, well, do you want a forensic examination from her? Right? You're gonna, we're all going to hold hands, sing Kumbaya, we're going to take this money, right? Mm-hmm. Well, how do you do that to these business development corporations? So the problem is, is, look, there are things that we can do. We will do them in the end, but it's not as easy um, that we can get the money as quickly and as easily and create that firebreak that we need. Yeah, and that brings up a good point about some people would call it the, maybe the shadow banking mm-hmm. sector. So you look at, let's just say, a Jefferies or something like that, where they're, they could possibly have a lot of these uh, direct lending um, exposure, maybe even the BDCs. So is that something where they could some of those companies could be forced into becoming a bank holding company. We, I know we saw Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley convert in 08, so they could tap the discount window. And then secondly, I guess I've been hearing some rumors about like, some of these market-making firms over in Chicago having some issues with the volatility, maybe needing a bailout there. And then we've already seen a couple large hedge funds um, you know, not doing direct market making, but using similar strategies. And there's, I know a lot of the, the market is really on the uh, machine trading and algo trading. Um, and so I guess let's just take those pieces individually. So look, I think, um, I think you're correct. I think we probably, by the time this is over, there will probably have a number of entities. And, you know, someone said to me, well, why not a big mutual fund, right? Why not a mm-hmm. big... Yeah. You know, uh, one of these household names, you know, a BlackRock, a PIMCO, uh, you know, why wouldn't they essentially end up uh, being allowed to tap the Fed window? Because essentially they become holders of market risk. Yeah. And maybe if we're going to prevent them from having to disgorge assets, you know, why wouldn't they? And I think those those are those are valid. I think many things will change in that respect. The market making stuff. Look, I, I think it's it's a train wreck. I mean, as I said, I I heard at the beginning of last week that the arguably the largest single market in the United States, the Treasury market, was becoming unhinged, mm-hmm. and it just wasn't trading because there was no liquidity. And we pointed out to you that. You know, you've increased the size of these markets, right? There's certainly more debt out there than there ever was. And yet you were balancing this off a smaller and smaller market making capability because you'd removed the ability of the banks to take risk. I mean, I was always incredulous, you know, about the steps behind the Volcker rule because I, I've, I followed the legislation from a policy perspective and it was seemed to be pushed through 
from political will because it was you know the policymakers kind of wanted to see to be punishing the banks um not from expediency Right. You can't balance a larger and larger market off a smaller and smaller pin and expect the thing to remain stable. And then you fill it that you, you make up that void, arguably, with this fictitious electronic um, liquidity, which is, you know, there when you don't need it and gone when you do. Right. And so when you're looking at the next steps for, you know, you, you, you talked about the fiscal piece of what might hap- what might come down the pike there. And they're obviously going to be have a lot of incentive to work together to push a bill through similar to what we saw with TARP, where they might actually be bailing out whether it's companies, they've already been talking about airlines, and then also, now we just saw this, I saw a news story here. The Treasury seeks go-ahead to use government cash to support money market funds. So whether it's money market, where it's whether it's converting to bank holding companies to ta- tap the discount window, whether it's you know doing some type of an emergency loan to backstop these companies, whether it's airlines, I saw they asked for a bailout of basically $25 billion and then another $25 billion loan. So whether it's going to be loans backstopped by the treasury and then, like you said, the Fed just is going to have the green light to just buy, like you said, they're, they're going to say, well, you, you issue it and we'll buy it. So, so, and then, you know, so that, you know, you laid out all that now, now for these next couple of meetings that are going to be happening through spring and summer, what it could be left obviously they talked about they don't want to take rates rates negative we've already seen i believe on the shortest which is flash negative which we saw already in you know so is the next step more large-scale asset purchases from the fed well i think yeah i mean to my mind it's just you know you just you expand the range of assets they can purchase right i mean credit as i said is a singularly large problem now right they've repoed investment grade credit that doesn't seem to have done much right so now probably they need you know the bank to be able to buy you know stuff off the other banks maybe they need to buy business loans or you know whatever they've got to be able to liquefy um, and the banks do have loans on their books maybe they need to start buying those off them and just to clarify, so the repo is just a short-term loan where right. there just gets a bit of liquidity. You take a you 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 borrow an asset essentially, and you pay interest to borrow that asset, um, but you give the bank liquidity during the during the borrowing process. Um, and so this next step would be basically the Fed be getting access approval rather from congress to be able to actually buy, buy the range buy of, i mean yeah they could buy you know look we've seen the boj buy etfs right why mm-hmm. technically couldn't the couldn't they do this i mean i you know it takes a crisis because no one wants to do it understandably but you don't let the system go down for want of trying Right. I mean, America is not that type of country. Right. We'll have shot off every single damn bullet that we've got before we go down. 
Yeah, had Jim Bianco on recently, and he brought up a good point on with the Fed that it's, they're going to be like a doctor where they're not going to just let the patient die there on the operating table. They're going to just throw every last thing they can. So we know that's that's going to happen. Um, and so you know, let's go down that rabbit hole a little bit. So let's say a lot of this stuff comes to fruition even faster than people think. That seems Is, to be the case. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And then is that, how are you looking at then just from a a bigger picture, your long-term outlook? Last time we talked was, you know, rates rising on the long end eventually and, um, you know, seeing that inflation kick in on on a very more long-term type of playbook, uh, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong there, but, and how are you looking at that piece as far as just from the the 20,000 foot view? Look, I think, as I said, I think, you know, when you when you go down that, if you, if you if you look at history and you go down that, examples of periods where fiscal spending came to dominate the cycle, um, inflation plays an integral part of that. Particularly as well, if you throw in there a weak dollar, which obviously we haven't seen yet, but as I said, you know, you these kind of dollar up moves typically mark the end of the cycle. Um, I just don't think we've done enough to guarantee that right right here, right now. Those are very inflationary uh, cycles. You can't, you're not trading it today, that's for sure as hell. But, you know, if you're thinking about opportunities and what you want to buy in this liquidation sell-off, you know, I've said to my macro insider clients, you know, one of the pools of assets that you want to be thinking about is what does well in a weak dollar environment what does well in a higher inflationary environment um mm-hmm. yeah i mean bonds will not do it for you i can bloody assure you not at one percent or 30 basis points you will get tarred and feathered in the fixed income market yeah so it's looking like equities that pay dividends and at least there's cash flow coming in, maybe something like gold, maybe, you know, there, it's hard to really see where to, where to hide out unless you're. Yeah. I mean, just figure you know, more- look, and we don't have it yet. Uh, Ryan, what's the government going to spend their money on when we come out of this? Right. Cause you know, they're going to have to so far. I mean, I think this is part of the problem so far, the fiscal spending that we are seeing proposed, and this is perhaps why it's not having the effect is really fiscal spending aimed at trying to offset the whole in GDP. If you think of GDP as a bucket of cash, right, the hole that's been blown in the side of the GDP bucket. Right. I mean, if we shut the bloody economy down for two months, in an economy of this size and GDP goes, growth goes to zero, how much do you need to fill that gap? Well, you know, the 1.2 trillion that we propose isn't enough. Yet. Yeah, and I'm seeing right? JP Morgan is forecasting a negative 4% US GDP in Q1 and then minus 14% in Q2. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that's you, you haven't spent enough money yet, right? You know, Congress is going to start really getting scared when they see those initial claims just explode. And as we said at the beginning, and we talked about in December, 
This was not an economy that was going in there into this downturn, despite what the equity market was suggesting with a sort of 3% handle. This was going into this with a 1% handle. Mm-hmm. Right. So there was already there were already clear signs of fragility in the labor market. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And now when you're looking at, you know, equity prices here, it looks like they came a little off their lows into the close. And it seems like the Trump administration is having press conferences every day now, basically. I know people are pretty much <laughs> told to stay home at this point. So there's, I know they're trying to keep um, people updated about what to do next and, and different closures and different, and you know, what the plan is. But it seems like the market is really reacting to news just on a day to day, even minute by minute basis. So, right. And it is. But the point is, is it's it happened. I mean, look, you can see certain patterns, right? So, you know, we have like yesterday a better day, right? And then the the session ends, and the rest of the world sells off. Why? Because the rest of the world still has long U.S. assets. Okay, mm-hmm. so they're still disgorging those U.S. assets, and they tend to do it. You know, it's certainly in some of the S and P, which is liquid all day. You can you can trade it there. Um, you know, we get these bear market squeezes. Those are kind of normal, right? But I have to say to you, until you see credit stabilize and until you see uh, volatility come down, right, and maybe you see some stability in risk parity, uh, you know, and ultimately we see some peak in these numbers mm-hmm. um, in terms of the virus. I mean, why should we expect to see a low? Right. Right. That makes sense. So now it looks like everyone is waiting on this stimulus plan on the fiscal side to see how large it's going to be, where the spending is going to go. And then do you think that could be a catalyst to bring the VIX down and, and calm? Look, maybe, uh, but at the same time, you know, Governor Como is right. And we've got 110,000 people in beds in New York state hospitals you know, and they'll be in parking lots at that point, right? Then the answer is maybe not. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of people are talking about, okay, more government uh, stimulus and money printing is not going to fix this virus because obviously we need, um, you know, the, the medicine to be able to be developed and to be able to treat this thing and inoculate people against it. But on the other hand, I understand the piece of, you know, keeping credit markets functioning, keeping the economy at least stabilized, getting money into people's pockets for the short term. So how do you, how do you tie in that piece as far as obviously, like you said, okay, the virus is still going to be there, but you know, do you think at least having stabilizing markets will set us up to be able to treat uh, people in a more orderly fashion, possibly. I, as I said, I'm a little worried that shooting off our bullets before we have this virus under control could lead us to a situation where the only solution is closing the markets. I haven't wanted to entertain it i know you know raul and i produce macro insiders together and raul has been very clear 
Uh, and I haven't been in that camp until recently. And I just think until we see that virus stabilize, um, I'm a little, I am worried that it could happen. And I do think personally, if you get to that situation, you want to be, if you can time it, you probably want to be fully invested the day they close the markets uh, because they won't reopen them until they're pretty damn sure they're going to get a bounce. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure that fiscal on its own, absent a peaking of this virus does anything. I mean, there's a lot of resilience in this country, but we're also a bunch of hypochondriacs. Right? I, I tweeted, you know, <laughs> right. a, a few weeks ago that the British would queue up to die, right? And they'd get a nice cup of tea on the way, right? That's not really how America's going to go. And I, you know, if this thing really, it's not my base case that it gets out of hand. I think there's some really positive signs out there, you know, in terms of maybe potentially medication that's coming through, the stuff that can really mitigate. Um, I think there's some really interesting questions to be asked. Why aren't we seeing some of the breakouts in warmer parts, even of the United States, that we are in the cooler bits? Does that mean that maybe it could start to go away as the temperature starts to warm up? And so I do think there's hope, don't get me wrong, by any stretch of the imagination. That's kind of my game plan, that there is that we are going to get those sorts of breaks. But if we're absent that, absent that, and the numbers just keep increasing, I, I'm not sure until you shut markets, unless you've just run all of leverage out of the system, which would be beyond catastrophic, right? We haven't even started to price that in. Um, the fire breaking this thing without closing markets may be much harder than we realize. Yeah, and so far we've seen one market close. I believe it was in the Philippines. Yep. Yep. So yeah, it's probably some dodge. So he probably closed the market. I don't know. I mean, I'm just <laughs> right. So Filipino listeners. Yeah. So kind of in closing here, as you talked about, the next meeting here coming up for the Fed is not a press conference meeting, but the one after will be. As you just mentioned, too, when they did these two emergency meetings, both on Sunday, I believe, mm -hmm. you know, the market just kind of shrugged it off and just started tanking. Right well, yeah, I mean, they factored in the rate moves. That was the problem, right? They'd factored, we'd more than factored in the rate moves. Um, I think they need to deliver something on the plumbing side, right? So mm -hmm. they need to either enable banks to loosen up bank capital requirements or they need to um, expand. The, they need to, to go back, get their uh, range of assets so they can buy expanded, and then they need to, start, need to start doing that. You know, absent that, they're a sideshow to what goes on on the fiscal side and on the virus side itself. Yeah, and I think there was some concern from people that they shot out one of their bullets when they don't have too many left, and then the, it was – a little bit too early so Correct. i think that, now you know, it seems like i made earlier right if you if you haven't got yeah. the virus and you're just shooting off all your ammo i mean i don't think they're done i to the point you know to jim bianco's point i totally agree with him i think there's 
conceptually no end to the things that they can do. Uh, they've just got to get permission to get them done. And that means creating enough angst among the policy level uh, to change things. And that possibly means um, we've got to see the unemployment numbers. But look, by the time people get this, you know, on Wednesday, we'll have had the initial claims number. And some of those things could have just sealed the deal. Yeah. All right, Julian, we'll really appreciate having you on. I think we'll leave it here and we really want to have you back for the maybe the next uh, Fed meeting or the next event before that, if they do an emergency meeting and, and talk about um, some of these things that might have already come to fruition. So, Brian, it's been a pleasure, sir. Keep safe. Thanks. And as I keep saying to everyone, wash your hands. Thanks, Julian. Really appreciate it. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at jellydonutpod, or you can contact us via email at jellydonutpodcast at protonmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.